Well, good morning, and uh, good to be here with you again on this Lord's Day as we take another look at Philippians chapter 1, and we're in our second week in our sermon series that will take us uh, till about the end of May in the book of Philippians, and we're calling this sermon series Living for the Joy and the Advancement of the Gospel. And I think what we'll see this morning in our text and in the weeks ahead as we look at uh, this little letter to the church in Philippi more closely, is that we're going to see that those two things are um, kind of one and the same. Very often, the, the person who is experiencing joy in the gospel, very often is the person who is advancing the gospel. The one who is living to advance the gospel is very often times the one who's experiencing joy in the gospel. These two things go together, and uh, I think we're going to see that this morning, and again in the weeks ahead. Uh, we'll keep your Bibles open, uh, but before we take a closer look at God's Word, I have a question for you. This is my question. How is it that two believers can go through the same exact experiences in life, and yet have two very different responses to those experiences? Two believers experience the same thing, and yet they have two very different responses to that thing. For example, how is it that one believer can go through tragedy, hardship, and disappointment in life, and yet they can experience a profound sense of joy in the midst of those difficulties? While another believer can go through the same exact tragedies, the same hardships, the same disappointments in life, and yet they can experience the exact opposite of what that other believer experienced. Instead of experiencing joy, they experience resentment, bitterness, and contempt. How is it that one believer can go through a job loss, or the death of a loved one, a prolonged illness, or the betrayal of a friend, family tensions, or a terrible boss, and yet maintain a sense of joy throughout those difficult circumstances. While another believer can go through the same exact difficulties in life, and instead of experiencing a sense of joy, they slide into a season or even a lifelong rut of joylessness. How does this happen? How is it that two believers can experience the same difficulties in life and yet have two very different responses to those difficulties? Well, one thing that becomes clear as we consider this question this morning is that our responses to difficult circumstances in life aren't determined by the circumstances themselves. It's not as though the difficulties that we face in life in and of themselves have the power to determine how we respond. If that were the case, then presumably we would expect all of God's people to always respond the same way when they face tragedies or hardships. But we don't always all respond the same way. When facing difficult circumstances, some believers respond with joy, while others respond with joylessness. So it's not the difficulties themselves, it's not the, the trying times, it's not the, the, the difficult circumstances that determine our responses, it's something else. Something else determines how we respond. Well, as we'll see in our text for this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, the text that Pastor Leo read. What determines our responses to difficult circumstances in life 
isn't the difficult circumstances themselves, but rather our interpretation of those circumstances. It's the conclusions we draw about the events that we experience, not the events themselves that determine how we respond. It's the perspective that we have or the understanding that we have on the tragedies of life, not the tragedies themselves that will determine how we respond, whether we respond with joy or whether we respond with joylessness. And in our text for this morning, what we're gonna see is that the Apostle Paul has a certain kind of perspective, a certain kind of understanding or interpretation of what the difficulties that he's currently experiencing that allows him to face that, those difficulties with joy. Instead of responding to his unjust imprisonment in Rome, instead of responding to that with resentment, bitterness, and contempt, which admittedly many of us would probably respond with, Paul has a certain kind of perspective on his current suffering that allows him to respond to that difficulty with joy, with that sense of peace and confidence and contentment that comes from the Lord and that transcends difficult circumstances. So what was it that caused the Apostle Paul to experience joy in the midst of his difficulty? In the midst of being unjustly imprisoned in Rome, what was it that gave him the ability to respond with joy? What was his perspective or his interpretation or his understanding that allowed him to endure his suffering with joy? Well, the first thing that we're going to notice in our text for this morning is that Paul's perspective on his current difficulty is that he believes that God uses our adversities in life for God's redemptive purposes. This is something that, that Paul believes to the core of his being. Far from our difficulties being a hindrance to God accomplishing what he wants in our lives, often our difficulties are the very means by which God chooses to accomplish what he wants in this world. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Contrary to what the Philippian believers, and probably contrary to what many of us would think, Paul tells them that his imprisonment, far from being a, a hindrance to gospel advancement, has actually served to advance the gospel. It's caused the gospel to move forward. Paul says to the Philippian believers that his imprisonment has become the very means by which God is advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the city of Rome. It's actually through Paul's suffering, not despite his suffering, that salvation in Christ is going forth. And this very likely is a surprise to the Philippians. This is probably not what they were expecting to hear from Paul when he wrote this letter. And now, at this point in the letter, he's given them a little bit of an update on his situation. He's letting them know what's going on with him. What they would have expected is trying times, difficult times. And what Paul says, yeah, I'm experiencing difficulty. Those difficulties are, 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 are resulting in the advancement of the gospel. One of the things that Anna and I have learned as parents of four little kids is just how important fairness is to little kids. Fairness is a big deal. Apparently, we are raising a house full of future little lawyers and judges. Uh, because anytime there's something unfair in our home, they let us know. We hear about it. 
Why does he get to stay up later than I do? That's not fair. Why does she get a, big, a bigger piece of cake than I do? That's not fair. Why can't I ride my bike along that busy road? That's, that's not fair. Fairness is a big deal to our kids. But another thing that Anna and I have learned as parents is that instead of trying to make everything fair for our kids, instead of always trying to even the score, make everything kind of a level playing field, very often we just acknowledge the unfairness of life. We just acknowledge it. We say to them, well, the reason that he gets to stay up later than you is because he's older than you. Sorry that that's unfair, but that's the way it is. The reason that she gets a bigger piece of cake is because it's her birthday. It's not yours. Sorry. The reason you can't go on that busy street right now is because you're not yet responsible for it. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. By acknowledging the unfairness of life, Anna and I figure that the sooner our kids can learn that life isn't always fair, the better that life is going to go for them. And the same is true for us. The sooner that we can learn that the difficulties that we face in life have little to do with whether or not it's fair, the better it'll go for us. The sooner that we can understand that the hardships of life that we all go through, that we all endure, aren't tied to who's deserving and who's not, the better we will be able to endure those hardships. For the Apostle Paul, here in chapter 1, as he considered his unjust imprisonment, as he's writing to give an update to the Philippians on how he's doing, the issue for him wasn't, is this fair? The issue for him wasn't, what did I do to deserve this? Why am I stuck in this prison? That wasn't the issue for him. Rather, the issue for the Apostle Paul was, how was God using this? Can I see God's hand at work right now in my situation? What is God doing to use my difficulty? The issue for Paul wasn't whether or not he deserved his imprisonment. He would trust God with that question. Rather, the issue for him was how was God using? How was God at work in the midst of his suffering? That's what concerned Paul as he sat in a Roman prison. And in verses 13 and 14... Paul sees two ways that God is using his unjust imprisonment to accomplish God's redemptive purposes in the world. He sees two ways that God is using Paul's current suffering to advance the gospel. Look at verse 13. He says, as a result, talking about his imprisonment, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. The first way that Paul sees God using his difficult situation, advancing the gospel, is by what Paul sees happening among the palace guard. He sees something happening, and he sees that God is at work. Through Paul's imprisonment, he recognizes that important people, people who might not have otherwise had a chance to hear the gospel, are hearing the gospel because Paul is in prison. He says the palace guard and everyone else they're hearing that Paul is in prison for Christ. The name of Christ is being heard by those who are right now aware of Paul's situation, these guards. The phrase palace guard, it likely refers to the Roman emperor's own personal elite bodyguards. Now there's some uh, 
uncertainty here, but likely that's what the palace guard is referring to. These were, these were guards that think of today our secret service agents. Right, this is kind of who these guards were. They were guards who were tasked with the responsibility of protecting the emperor and overseeing important prisoners like, like Paul. And as part of their duty of overseeing important prisoners, they would have stood guard over Paul on a rotating basis. These guards taking turns, taking shifts, watching over Paul. And Paul says that it's through this situation that the whole palace guard is hearing about Christ. As each guard comes in and stands watch over Paul, they're hearing about Christ. And then a new guard comes in to stand watch over Paul, and they're hearing about Christ. Could you imagine Paul's conversation with these guards? Could you imagine what he might have uh, been talking about with them, the, the, the topic of conversation? Maximus, it's good to see you again this morning, brother. How are you doing? How's your wife? How are your kids? Where'd we leave off yesterday before you left for your shift? Oh, that's right. We were talking about your forgiveness, your need for forgiveness, and how Jesus accomplished that on the cross. You mind if we pick up where we left off from yesterday? Or a new guard comes to watch Paul. Decimus, it's great to see you again. Are you still thinking that there's more than one God in control of this world? Have you given any, any thought to what I was telling you about Jesus? His claims of being God and how he proved it through his resurrection. Do you imagine Paul taking the opportunity to talk with each guard that came to stand watch over him like this? It would become evident that for Paul, suffering was not viewed as, a, as an impediment to the gospel, but rather as an opportunity for the gospel. That's the first way that Paul sees his current sufferings being used by God for the advancement of the gospel. But the second way that he sees God using his current suffering, his current situation, is by seeing what's happening among the Christians in Rome. Look at verse 14. He says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Somehow through Paul's imprisonment, Paul says that the believers in Rome have actually become more emboldened in their faith. Somehow through Paul's chains, far from being a discouragement to the, the Christians in Rome, it's actually served to be an encouragement to them. Somehow Paul's boldness for Christ has resulted in their boldness for Christ. And one of the things that we see here in verse 14 that's important for us to recognize as God's people this morning is that boldness begets boldness. Boldness begets boldness. When God's people see one another acting boldly for Christ, it results in more boldness for Christ among God's people. It makes us more willing to share the gospel with people that we maybe are afraid to share the gospel with. It makes us less fearful to take a risk and to talk with someone about Christ when we see other people becoming bold for Christ, it results in boldness in us. I have a friend uh, who does this well, a friend who exemplifies boldness for the gospel. He's a cardiac sonographer in Kenosha, which means that he takes ultrasounds of people's hearts. 
The people that come to see him typically have something going on with their heart, and they're feeling quite a bit of, bit of angst, quite a bit of anxiety over what's going on with their situation. But instead of my friend remaining silent and, and being professional, he views those situations as opportunities to talk to them about the gospel. And he talks about Christ with these patients who are experiencing incredible anxiety. He tells them about the, 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 the hope that they can have in Jesus, the fact that Jesus can give them a sense of uh, not having to fear over what's happening with them. And whenever I talk to him about uh, his job and about how he approaches his job, I find myself emboldened to want to do the same. When I hear the, fact, hear the way that he shares the gospel with people, it makes me want to share the gospel with people around me. His boldness makes me want to be bold. And I'm convinced that we all need someone like that in our life. All of us. We need someone who will spur us on to become more bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this morning, do you have someone like that in your life? Do you have a friend or someone that you know who acts boldly for Christ and who makes you want to be bold for Christ? If you do have someone like that in your life, can I encourage you to spend more time with them? Rub shoulders with them more. Watch what they do. Uh, hang out with them more. Because their boldness will result in your boldness. If you don't have someone like that in your life, and I understand that some of us maybe don't, can I encourage you to pray about it? Can I encourage you to pray that God would put someone like that in your life, someone who was bold for Christ and who will encourage you to be bold for Christ? Because as verse 14 shows us, boldness among God's people begets more boldness among God's people. In verses 12 through 14, which is the first part of our passage for this morning, we see that Paul's perspective on his current difficulty, on the suffering that he's going through, is utterly, utterly unique. He believes that God can use our adversity in life for his redemptive purposes. That's, that's what Paul sees. That's his understanding of his current situation. Paul has no problem looking at his current difficulties and concluding what he does in verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's his perspective. His perspective is that his suffering, his imprisonment, is simply a way that God has chosen to advance the gospel through Paul. What about us this morning? Are we able to, with Paul, look at our current difficulties in life and say with Paul that what has happened to us has really served to advance the gospel? Are we able to have that kind of perspective on the difficulties that we experience in life? And some of us are going through some very trying times right now, but can we say with the Apostle Paul, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I think about the Christian who gets passed over for that job promotion that they've been working years for. And again, passed over for that job promotion. And as a result, someone else gets that job promotion, and now that Christian remains stuck in the same job and in the same cubicle that they've had for years. They feel like there's no end in sight. 
But in time, they establish a relationship with the coworker in the cubicle next to them. Eventually, that relationship leads to discussions about Christ, and that coworker ends up getting invited to church. Once at church, that coworker hears about the gospel and responds to it and ends up becoming a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. In a situation like that, could that Christian say with the Apostle Paul that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel? The fact that he was passed over for a job promotion, would he be able to say with Paul what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel? I think about the Christian suffering from health issues and is just no longer able to do the kinds of things in life that they were able to do before. They're constantly in pain these days. They're constantly in and out of the doctor's office. They're constantly uncertain of what the future holds for them. But in time, their family members begin to notice how well they suffer for Christ, how well they're going through their suffering. Instead of responding to their suffering with resentment, bitterness, and contempt, the family begins to notice that this Christian is responding to their suffering with joy. They're experiencing peace and contentment. That doesn't make sense. And suddenly, family members who weren't taking their faith all that seriously, suddenly they begin to take their faith more seriously. Suddenly they see something real about what God can do in someone's life. What was once a lukewarm faith among some of the family members now is a vibrant faith because of how they're watching this Christian suffer well. In a situation like that, could it be that that Christian suffering from health issues might be able to say with Paul, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I think about the Christian couple who have tried for years to get pregnant, to conceive, but were never able to conceive. And as a result, they now find themselves in a world of adoption and foster care. This isn't what they planned for in life. They had other dreams, other expectations, but it's their reality now. But in time the dozens of children who pass through their home through the years end up hearing about the gospel. Children who may have never had an opportunity to hear about the gospel otherwise. And as a result, some of those kids end up growing up to embrace Christ for themselves and raising up Christian families of their own. In a situation like that, could it be that the Christian couple who wasn't able to conceive, suffering from that disappointment in life, could it be that they could say with the Apostle Paul, what has happened to us has really served to advance the gospel? Many of us are going through difficult things right now in life. And it takes a certain kind of perspective to say with the Apostle Paul, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. God will do it. He will use whatever we're going through to advance the gospel in our lives. So that's the first thing. That's the first part of Paul's perspective on his current difficulty. He believes that God can use the adversity that we face in life for his redemptive purposes. And this is making all the difference for Paul as he sits in a Roman prison. But Paul also believes that, that God can even use the, the personal animosity that we face in life for his redemptive purposes. When faced with personal attacks 
even from fellow believers and criticisms and ill will, Paul's perspective is that even personal animosity, even opposition against us, can be used by God to further the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. This perspective, I mean, it's astonishing. How many of us can say with Paul, when we face adversity, when we face animosity from other people, how many of us are able to say what Paul can say here? Now, it's not exactly clear as to why some of these believers who have become emboldened because of Paul's imprisonment, it's not exactly clear as to why some of them are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry toward Paul. Paul doesn't really tell us why they're doing this, why that's their motive. And he doesn't explain to us exactly why they're doing this, why they're preaching Christ in such a way as to make things more difficult for Paul. That's what Paul's saying. They're preaching Christ in such a way that they want to rub salt in Paul's wounds. They want to kick him while he's down. But Paul doesn't tell us why. It could be, and this is a little bit of speculation, but maybe a little bit of informed speculation, it could be that Paul's popularity, Paul's influence was growing among the Christians in Rome. People were hearing about him and beginning to gain a little bit more interest in what Paul was saying and how he was talking about the gospel, but recognizing that Paul was not the one who planted those churches in Rome. Paul did not start the churches in Rome. Someone else did. And it could be that those who started the churches in Rome are feeling a little jealous, that someone else is taking the spotlight. Someone else is getting the attention of the flock, and it could be that those original, those, uh, star, those leaders who founded those churches in Rome, it could be that some of them want that popularity, want that influence for themselves. It's not as though this doesn't happen today in God's church. So this is likely what's going on. Well, whatever the situation is, what is clear is that Paul's perspective on these Christians who are acting with envy and rivalry is astonishing. Instead of becoming resentful and embittered toward these, in Christ, toward these Christians, Paul can look past their animosity and he can see how God is using their animosity for his purposes. Paul figures as long as the gospel is being preached, he will respond with joy, even if it means that he has to go through ridicule and animosity and slander in order for the gospel to go forward. He's okay with that. He's fine with that. He's happy if that's how God wants to use this situation, he will endure scorn if the gospel will go forward. But the question is why? Why? Why is the Apostle Paul able to endure slander, ridicule, people preaching Christ with false motives just to get at Paul? How is he able to endure all that with 
joy so long as the gospel message is being preached? Why is he able to respond that way to his current situation? The first reason is because for Paul, life isn't about Paul. Life is not about him. Paul recognizes that in the grand scheme of things, this world, this life, is not about Paul. Yes, God is using Paul, and he recognizes that, but he recognizes that God is able to raise up someone else, and he can use someone else. All that matters for Paul is what God wants. And if God right now wants Paul to endure ridicule and opposition so that the gospel of Jesus can go forth, then Paul is willing to endure it. And he'll endure it with joy. Because for Paul, this life is not about him. He's not all that important. He doesn't take himself that seriously. The second reason that Paul can endure the animosity that he's facing from those around him is because for Paul, life is about the gospel. That is Paul's singular passion in life. It's the gospel. The only thing that matters to Paul is that the gospel of Jesus, that the saving message of Jesus Christ, that it's going forward. And if he has to endure animosity and adversity, in order for this to happen, he'll do it. And he'll do it with joy. Because for him, he believes that everything that we face in life has the potential to be used by God to advance his kingdom purposes through our lives. That's Paul's perspective. That's how Paul is able to endure what he's going through right now. Kenneth Bay, some of you might know the name from maybe about a decade ago. Kenneth Bay is a South Korean missionary and U.S. citizen who served as a tour guide in North Korea. That was kind of his sort of... Uh, he was a missionary, but one of the things that he did was that he went on tours in North Korea. On one of his tours in 2013, he took a group of Christians to see and to pray for the country of North Korea. After leaving his hotel room one morning, government officials broke into his room, they confiscated his computer, and they found emails indicating that as part of, that as part of this tour that he was leading, that he was going to lead this group of Christians on a time of prayer for the people of North Korea. And without warning, Kenneth Bay was arrested and sentenced to 15 years of hard labor in a North Korean prison camp. And while imprisoned in a North Korean prison camp, one of the guards came up to him and they said to him, if your God is so good, then why are you here in this prison? Bay responded, if my God were not good, I would not be here to tell you about him. That's Bay's perspective. What would it take to have that kind of perspective on our trials in life? What would it take to view our trials not as a hindrance to our dreams or our priorities and our plans in life, but as the very means by which God wants to use us to advance the saving message of Jesus? What would it take? Well, like Bay, like the Apostle Paul, it requires a fundamental belief that this life is not about us. It's about the gospel. It's about recognizing that what God wants to do through us is advance his kingdom, even if that means that he needs to use our trials in order to do this. 
And that perspective, far from being a burden on our lives, that perspective is one of the surest ways that you and I can experience joy when we go through the trials of life. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for my family. And that's what I want for you, to have that kind of perspective on the trials that we endure in this life. So I want to ask you now that we pray together and ask God for his help to give us this perspective on our suffering, to do it for our good and for his glory. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we pause now and we thank you, God, for Paul's example. We thank you, God, that through the Apostle Paul, you are showing us that you can work in the midst of our suffering and that you can change our perspective on our suffering. That we can see our, our, our suffering as something that you will use for your ultimate ends. God, may that be the very perspective, the, ver the very understanding that will give us joy in this life. Many of us, God, are going through difficult, trying times right now, and and many of us who maybe currently are not going through a trying time, we know that the way life works out, we will at some point in the future be going through a difficult time. And I pray, God, that through your spirit working in us, you would help us to have this perspective on suffering, that you can use it for your glory and for our good. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.